Looking to create your best self, whether it's good for you lifestyle hacks, smarter ways to supplement, or tasty tips to fuel optimal health, Talk Healthy Today provides you the latest research tools and common sense tips you need to get and stay healthy starting today. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I am absolutely in love with doing this podcast. I would be thrilled if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the podcast. Now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. It has been far too long since I've had this fantastic gentleman on my programs. I am such a huge fan of his work, his kindness, his brilliance. Everything about Norman E. Rosenthal, MD, is just lovely. And today we're talking about his fantastic new book, Poetry Rx, How 50 Inspiring Poems Can Heal and Bring Joy to Your Life. Dr. Norman, so good to see you. Oh, just lovely to be here with you again. Oh, it's been far too long. So, Dr. Norman, I've never really thought that much about poetry. You know, I thought, you know, it's nice, and but I never thought of it as a healing tool. And I love in the introduction, you talk about your friend. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this, this story, and then we'll jump into some of the poems, the way you broke them down, the takeaways. It was just fabulous. Well, it was late last night, not last night, but it feels like last night. Right. It was late one night when the phone rang and it was my friend um, telling me that he'd lost somebody very dear to him. And, you know, it's difficult to know what to say. Everything seems so somehow inadequate. But I realized that he was a very uh, artistic guy. And I said to him, you know, losing is an art. And like any art, it can be developed. And suddenly I heard him sound kind of excited. And he said, do you know the poem? I said, no, which poem are you talking about? He said, One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. And he said, let me read it to you. And he started reading. And the art of losing isn't hard to master. Some things seem filled with the intent to be lost. So their loss is no disaster. And she goes on and on and on. And it's it's actually a, a gorgeous poem. I don't want to spoil it by telling anybody the ending. <laughs> Can you spoil a poem? But anyway, um, so the interesting thing was that his voice seemed to lighten and he seemed to sort of experience some vibrancy on the poem. And actually so did I. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. You know, as somebody whose job it is to help people feel better, anytime I see something that makes somebody feel better, I take note. So I figured, you know, maybe this is a sort of general principle. Maybe I can find one or two other poems. And as often happens, they were all over. They were hidden in plain sight. And so this book is really uh, a chronicle of the poems that I feel can really help inspire, bring joy to people's lives. Oh, they're all so beautiful. I also love that you write in the book, How to Get the Most Out of a Poem. Remember to enjoy the poem. You write, it should be fun, not work. Actively engage with the poem. Give it your full attention and it will reward you. Because so often our attention is so scattered. And this is an activity. When you're reading this book, Poetry Rx, which I highly recommend, 
you don't want to be checking your phone and, you know, thinking you really, it's almost like a meditation in a way or mind. you have to be really mindful, right? And that's your big thing, transcendental meditation. You're like, oh, yes, Dr. Norman. Because otherwise, I think you're going to miss out on the message if you're kind of distracted, wouldn't you say? I, I thoroughly agree. But for those people who don't want to have their attention riveted anywhere for too long, lest they miss an email or or God forbid, a text. Um, <laughs> but but um, what it is, is because it's 50 chapters, little little chapters. Um, one of my friends said that the book is congenial for snacking. Oh, I love that. You can snack. You don't have to have a full meal. And so, you know, and what I want is to give people a complete experience with every poem. Let them read the poem read it to themselves, read it aloud, look at what I say about it, get some takeaway points that could be helpful to them, and then see who is this brilliant person who wrote this poem and how does her or his life story map to the poem. And actually, I say they're brilliant, which they are, but they're also passionate. They lived lives of intensity, of huge um, mood fluctuations or huge passions, uh, you know, they, they all come to mind. Uh, one that comes to mind is Keats, who wrote a sonnet that's just 14 lines after he read a new translation of Homer. And it was so thrilling to him that he had to write the sonnet before he went to sleep. So they went, he and a friend went to reading this new this new uh, translation deep into the night and then he ran home and wrote the sonnet and the sonnet was on the friend's desk first thing in the morning already and done and it's a masterpiece of, of English literature but that's an index of the kind of passion and intensity of these people so my goal is to bring all of that in one little snack. Well, you did. And I love this as well. When you're giving some advice, you say, as a reader, you complete the poem and the process bringing your past experiences into the collaboration between you and the poet. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. For example, there's one poem called Failing and Flying, and it's a gorgeous poem by Jack Gilbert. And it talks about a time when he was on, the poet was, I don't know, it was real life, but it sounds so authentic. Uh, the poet was on a beautiful Mediterranean island with a, a lovely woman who he obviously still loved, his wife, but she was falling out of love with him. And even as he realized she was falling out of love with him, he held on to everything he loved about her. You know, and, and so many people, when love fails or, or drops or falls out of the picture, they get so antagonistic and acrimonious. And there he was, still loving, still realizing that she was beautiful and that he loved her and that who could who would, could say the, the marriage failed when they had such wonderful days together, even right at the end. Oh, that is so beautiful. 
You know, in chapter one, is there an art to losing? I mean, you mentioned that, Elizabeth Bishop. I really like that you talked about the the biology of loss. You write, Bishop's reassurance that we are capable of enduring severe losses is well-grounded in the history of our species, which has been biologically programmed to withstand the death of infants, older children, parents, siblings, and friends. I never thought of it that way. You can expand on that. Yeah, I think, uh, well, in general, I've tried to bring my understanding of neurobiology into our enjoyment and understanding of the poems. And when she says the art of losing is not too hard to master, well, let's face it, it's no fun to lose anybody. It's really a hard thing. But in times past, people lost half of their children before they'd reached adulthood. Um, We were adapted to loss. And uh, there's basic research. There is famous research, controversial, but famous research by Harry Harlow Mm -hmm. on monkey separation from their parents. And it shows you stages that they go through. And um, Bowlby, the great uh, psychologist showed um, in after the Second World War when children were separated from parents. Once again, there were stages of, you know, protest, withdrawal, and then for the lucky ones, reattachment to somebody else. This book comes at a really good time in my life. My father-in-law is 87 and COVID was really hard on him. He didn't get it, but just the isolation. I mean, we still saw him, but he's a very social person and likes to be out in in the community and just make small talk. And my daughter is is, is seeing the changes and she's starting to worry and we're starting to be concerned. Mm. And loss is just so hard. I mean, it's been 26 years this year since my mother passed. For some reason lately, she's just been on my mind a lot. So your book is helping me as well. One of the things, too, I thought was interesting is is in Elizabeth Barrett Browning's How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways. That's the only line I knew. And I bet a lot of people are out there going, yep, me too. And so to read the whole poem, I thought, wow, this is absolutely beautiful. What was it like for you to, to really dig in, not just to this one, but to others? It was such a revelation. You know, it was during the pandemic year and we were so deprived. And of course, there were all the usual Netflix offerings and things. But this has been something I've wanted to do for a long time. And the solitude and deprivation actually gave me an opportunity. And at the end, I say what the poems have been like to me is they've like, it's like opening a jewel box and seeing these precious stones refracting the light all over the room and filling it with color. And, and uh, it's like, I say, the, the ancient lamps illuminating the minds. Um, so these poems are really like gems, and it's been such a thrill to be able to share that and also say not only are these beautiful, ingenious, but they actually heal. They're actually like balm. They can soothe and they can actually help in so many different ways that I've charted in the book. Yeah. And and I don't know that much poetry. Like I said, I'd heard that line before. Uh, And again, I'm not going to go through all of them because people have to get the book. But I pity me not because the light of day by Edna St. Vincent Millay. I've heard that. 
but I never really read the whole thing. I would love for you to read one of your favorites or this, you know, this one or because your voice is so lovely and I tend to mess up my words sometimes when I, I read. I'm happy to read any, but this poem is particularly ingenious and she was a great sonneteer. Here you go. Pity me not because the light of day at close of day no longer walks the sky. Pity me not for beauties passed away from field and thicket as the year goes by. Pity me not the waning of the moon, nor that the ebbing tide goes out to sea, nor that a man's desire is hushed so soon, and you no longer look with love on me. This have I known always. Love is no more than the wide blossom which the wind assails, than the great tide that treads the shifting shore, strewing fresh wreckage gathered in the gales. Pity me that the heart is slow to learn what the swift mind beholds at every turn. Hearing you with your lovely voice, it's even more powerful. Do you have a, did you have, do you have an audio book of this? It's 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 in the works. <gasps> It'll be out in late June, and I just can't wait to listen. You know, I've written a bunch of books, and I've never actually wanted to hear the audio tape because I figure I know what's in the book, so what's to listen to? But this one, I think, the sound of the audio book, and it's been re- it's been read by two voice actors, a husband and wife. So he'll read the male poems, and she'll read the ones written by female poets. Ooh. Uh, I can't wait to, it's it's uh, it's going to be out in late June. So excited. You write the sonnet, this sonnet came to my attention when a patient of mine, Beth, mentioned that she had found it particularly helpful. Tell us a little bit about Beth. Oh, yes, yes, yes. This is really important because that's how I found the sonnet. Oh. And what Edna St. Vincent Millay is saying in the sonnet is, you know, we all suffer from ordinary things. Seasons change, tides shift, things get wrecked by gales. Fine. We, we, this is ordinary human misery, as Freud might have said. But what I feel is my particular problem, said Beth to me. Beth's obviously a pseudonym. What Beth said to me is that my mind is swift. My mind is good, but it doesn't listen to my heart. She had been going for the wrong kind of people and she should have known it. Her swift mind could have told her at every turn, this is a mistake, this is a mistake. But based on childhood issues, an over-seductive father, um, rejecting and alternately rejecting and being very, you know, over over close with her, she had sought out men who were not kind to her, people who were, um, you know, erratic in their, uh, somehow by replicating that pattern, these people were particularly appealing to her as she tried again and again to win their affection, which of course was impossible because they were not really capable of being fully loving. The last two lines of this poem provided a crucial insight. As long as she just saw her problems as coming from outside, bad men, 
bad hookups, whatever, she didn't give herself any agency to do anything about it. But when she realized, wait a sec, something's going on inside me. My mind is good, but I'm listening to my heart too much. She started making better decisions. And guys who she previously wouldn't have thought were appealing or sexy or interesting because they weren't, quote, challenging, were suddenly now appealing because they were predictable, they were reliable, they were good for their word, they didn't mess her around, and suddenly that became sexy. Oh, that's amazing. In Chapter 7, Getting Over a Breakup 2, Reclaiming Yourself, Love After Love. I love this. Derek Walcott, if you could read that. Love After Love by Derek Walcott. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. What really struck you about that? It made you say, wow. Well, Several things. Firstly, it's prescriptive. It tells you what to do. You know, when you are at a loss, you've had a breakup, it's useful to get some clear guidance. And this gives that to you. And it deals with a very special aspect of recovering from a loss, reclaiming yourself. That before you're going to be in a position to rush on elsewhere, that is something you need to do. You need to regain your feeling that you are worth loving. And before you feel like people can love you, you, you've got to love yourself. So look at yourself in the mirror, and he gives you those steps. And the very kindly advice, admonition really, to take down the love letters, the desperate notes. You know, desperate notes is what we write when we're trying to salvage something that at some level we know is really unsalvageable. And take them down. Go back to yourself. Go back to everything that's lovable about you. It's such great advice. But at another level, there are in our prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain that is involved in executive decisions, there are mirror neurons. You know, if we're sitting across the room from each other and you smile, likely as not, I'll smile. If you fold your arms, I'll do the same. We have this kind of mirroring capacity. And the poet taps into that mirroring by having you smile at yourself in the mirror. You know, when we smile, we feel better. I know when we feel better, we smile, but the opposite is also true. There's a feedback going in the other direction. He wants you to tap into that, to use everything at your disposal to recover from the pain of a breakup. And there's something so generous and kind, sit down, eat, 
give food, give wine, feed yourself. So he's almost nurturing the reader, almost as he recommends that the reader nurture himself or herself. Yeah, and I love your comment. Don't confuse self-love with selfishness. I talk a lot on the show about the importance of self-love and self-care. And I think that is so important. You write, self-love does not mean caring for nobody other than yourself. It means taking care of yourself in ways that are consistent with being a functional member of society. And I love this too. I, I The Jewish sage Rabbi Hillel is often quoted as saying, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm not for others, what am I? And if not now, when? What, what one do you want to talk about? Because I've mentioned a couple. I'd love to hear what you'd like to share. One of the most wonderful, helpful poems is the power of hope is hope is the thing with feathers. If I may read that, it will make my day and hopefully someone else's as well. Um, Here goes. Hope is the thing with feathers by Emily Dickinson. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all and sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. You know, um, I'll tell you recently, some friends of mine in the Middle East were feeling so hopeless at this horrible new war and how there's the cycle of war going on and where will it ever end. And one of them, really tongue-in-cheek, had written to me and said, give me a poem for that. And so I gave her this poem and she came back and said, that was just a joke. A poem is never going to solve this current problem. Well, actually, nothing's solving it right now. Uh, so, so she was almost angry at me for, as it were, trivializing it. But then she came back and she said, you know, I went and read that poem. And actually, I did feel some hope. And the point of this poetry as treatments, really similar to meditation as treatment, sometimes when things around us are beyond our control, All we can do is settle ourselves down, soothe ourselves, calm ourselves, invigorate ourselves. And so we look around for anything that can help us to do that. And poetry is one such thing. You know, people say, you're telling me poetry can help everything? Well, you know, as a therapist, you know that nothing helps everything. Uh, Nothing is a panacea, really. Um, but when, and he said, they say to me, do you actually prescribe poetry? I say, well, you know, I prescribe good sleep. I prescribe exercise. I prescribe meditation. I prescribe light. And in that vein, I prescribe poetry. It's one of the things. It's not going to surpass everything. This is not a competition. This is a collaboration between different lifestyle changes that can help people. You're so right. And and Dr. Norman, what I, I love too is that you have the takeaways because someone might read a poem and they might 
find a little confusion or like, wait, I'm not really quite sure. And the fact that the takeaways I find really incredibly helpful, especially around being rejected, being, you know, about loss and grief, you have one, one of the takeaways on When You Are Old by William Butler Yeats. Yeats, is that how you say his name? I know the name. And in one of the takeaways, takeaways, you say, sometimes being rejected is the best thing that can happen to you. If it's not meant to be far better to learn sooner than later. You know, my daughter uh, was in a, a brief relationship with a, you know, kid at school, they're teenagers, and they weren't that together that long, and he broke up, and I won't get into all the details, but I remember her feeling so badly, so I'm going to have to read her this poem, you know, and just, well, what happened? And there wasn't even enough time to really let this thing grow and develop, and so I'm, uh, I just thought, I found that very comforting. Yeah, you know, when you're young, a breakup is so painful because you don't have the perspective that most relationships break up because you're busy trying to find the right person. And in that process, you're going to go through, I mean, when you go shopping for a car, you don't buy the first car you see or test drive. So in life, you try different things. And so the one aspect is to realize that every relationship gives you something. Right. Not only... You know, in the fairy stories we hear, they got married and had children and lived happily ever after. And, you know, that is a fairy tale. I mean, yes, hopefully everybody will. But even married people are not blissfully happy every single day of their lives simply because they've got the right person's head on the pillow next to them. That's fantasy. You know, so so relationships are interesting, but... Love has a value of its own. It gives you something. You give something to your partner. It can transform you. It can renew you. It can do wonderful things for you. And it can end. And that's okay. That's true. You know, I I also really found this movie in Chapter 14, Love After Death, Remember, by Christina Rossetti. Oh, that is so she was such an absolutely amazing woman. Christina Rossetti was an amazing woman. If I may read that. Oh, one, please. Yes. Every time I read it, it inspires me. And, you know, what I do with these poems is I tell a story for every poem. I try and make it relevant to the people I've known, whether they're people in my life or whether they're people, my clients. I try and make it relevant so that these aren't just things that are idealistic or idealized. They are really real human events. Here you go. Remember by Christina Rossetti. Remember me when I am gone away, gone far away into the silent land, when you can no more hold me by the hand, nor I half turn to go, yet turning stay. Remember me when no more day by day you tell me of our future that you planned. Only remember me, you understand. It will be late to counsel then or pray. Yet if you should forget me for a while and afterwards remember, do not grieve. For if the darkness and corruption leave a vestige of the thoughts that once I had, better by far you should forget and smile than that you should remember 
and be sad. Yeah, that is really powerful. And you talk about the takeaways. Memories of our loved ones generally stay with us and can serve as a source of comfort and joy. If you sense that you are approaching the end of your life, consider leaving meaningful keepsakes for your loved ones, including perhaps a note along with your will to comfort them when they need it most. And part of loving someone is giving your loved one permission to move on after you are gone. You know, when my mother was dying, she told my father that she wants him to, if he wanted to, she wants him to remarry because she thought that would be a way of saying that he enjoyed their marriage and he wanted more of that with somebody else. And he did. <laughs> and he's been with this second woman or second wife for 26 years, I think. No, she died in 24 years. You know, that that was an incredible gift because she was, she was freeing him. She was not making him uh, bound to her memory forever. And it's a huge gift, generous, you know. The, last gen- the generosity of doing something like that is very moving. You know, one poem that was very memorable to me, it's quite a longish poem, but it's in this collection. It's called Letter to My Mother. And I'll, actually, I'll read it. It's yes, South As I was leaving South Africa and I had my whole life in front of me, the excitement of going to the United States, newly married with a little boy, new career, new everything, I didn't consciously think much of the people I was leaving behind. But in fact, I must have at a very deep level be feeling, been feeling it because... I read this poem again and again, and it gave me great comfort. And only in retrospect did I understand that it was helping me release some of the guilt of leaving everybody and also celebrating their generosity at letting me go, just like the generosity that you've just expressed with your mother. So let me find it and just share it with you. This was written by Salvador Quasimodo. Um, He was born in Sicily in the south of Italy and then migrated north to make a name for himself. And in fact, he did and actually ended up winning the Nobel Prize for literature. So here goes, Letter to My Mother by Salvador Quasimodo. Mater Dulcissima, sweetest mother, that is. Now the mists are descending. The navilio thrusts disorderly on the locks. The trees swell with water, burn with snow. I am not unhappy in the north. I'm not at peace with myself, but seek pardon from no one, and many owe me tears. I know you are ailing. Live like all mothers of poets, poor, and just in the measure of their love for distant sons. Today it is I who write to you, At last, you will say, a line from the boy who ran away at night. Poor thing, so ready-hearted. One day, someday, they will kill him. Yes, I remember that grey stopping place for slow trains loaded with almonds, oranges at the mouth of the Imera, the river full of magpies, salt and eucalyptus. But now I want to thank you, truly, for the wry smile you set on my lips a smile as mild as your own. It has saved me pain and grief. And if now I shed a tear for you and all who wait like you and do not know what they wait for, it does not matter. 
Oh, gentle death, do not touch the clock in the kitchen that ticks on the wall. All my childhood was passed away on the enamel of its dial on those painted flowers. Do not touch the hands, the heart of the old. Does anyone answer? Oh, death of pity, death of shame. Goodbye, dear one. Farewell, my dulcissima mater. What takeaways did you find for that when you read that? The takeaways there are, if you plan to emigrate or move far away, it is understandable to have feelings of sadness and loss towards those you leave behind. Do your best to stay in touch with them and help them if you can. Finally, if your children need to emigrate or move far away, let them go. Mm. Yeah, I had a I have a good friend. She came from Russia to the US when she was 11. And it's she's now 50 just turned 54 and it's still hard you know she misses she she has a really good memory and i mean at 11 you do remember a lot and and she misses people there and she tries to go back when she can but there's just just like a part of her that's still there but she's been here for so long it's tough you have to let yourself feel however you're feeling about that you know those childhood years are so memorable you know there are first impressions And I remember my grandmother who had come from Lithuania and I remember her repeating a lot of the recipes and things of her childhood, making some um, cherry jam in a huge pot on the stove and stirring it with a wooden spoon and the whole house would smell of that tartar and sweetness of of the jam or all those old customs that were so dear to her, just like what you say with your friend. Mm, yeah, oh, it's you know I'm I have family from Lithuania as well. It's very interesting, Doctor Norman. I could keep you all day. I could read every have you read every poem, but I, I people need to get the book. It's so important. Poetry. Hold on a second. I'm trying to get back to the time. Poetry RX. It, poetry RX. How fifty inspiring poems can heal and bring joy to your life, Doctor Rosenthal. You have so many incredible books out there. We've had wonderful interviews. I've been doing health media for over 20 years. I've never had a book like this. And it's so important and timely and beautiful. So thank you. How do we find out more about you and your book and all that good stuff? Well, firstly, let me thank you. It's always such a joy to talk with you. I can see why your podcast is so successful. Oh, thank you. Um. This book is Poetry Rx, How 50 Inspiring Poems Can Heal and Bring Joy to Your Life. People can find all about me from my simple website, normanrosenthal.com. So thank you again, and I look forward to staying in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to Talk Healthy Today. I hope you got as much out of the show as I did. I feel so lucky to talk to so many incredible people to help you live your healthiest life. So please rate, review, and subscribe, and never miss an episode of Talk Healthy Today.